Hey guys, it's Mike Fabares here. And before we get into today's program, I wanted to tell you about an unexpected and exciting opportunity we have here at Focal Point. A generous donor has stepped up and agreed to match every single gift that we get this month up to a half a million dollars. That's an amazing opportunity. If you give $50, that becomes a hundred. If you give $100, it becomes $200. If you give $500, it becomes $1,000. Double your impact when you give online at focalpointradio.org. As Christians, we're often accused of being narrow-minded when it comes to getting to heaven. So what do you think? Is Jesus really the only way? We're about to grapple with that question right here, right now, on Focal Point. And welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. And it's that time of the week when Pastor Mike Fabares tackles a tough question from a listener like you. Now, if you have a question you want to ask Pastor Mike, you can send it to us at focalpointradio.org slash connect. But right now, let's join Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, as Pastor Mike answers a question that's bound to come up in our tolerant and pluralistic society. Jay? I'm back for another edition of Ask Pastor Mike, and we get asked a lot of very important questions each week, but this one is really important to answer. The question is, is Jesus the only way of salvation? I know that sounds a little narrow-minded in our society, but how would you respond to that? Well, it, it is narrow, but you know, I, it's not narrow-minded, it's just a simple, truthful answer. The only atonement for sin is through the cross of Christ. The only application of that given to us in God's Word is to put our trust in Him and the mechanism of the cross, repent of our sins. So we got the rules and we know how to do it. When you asked this question, it made me think uh, recently, I've never scuba dived before, but I happened to walk by with my wife one morning with a guy who was on the beach they're training people to go scuba diving and everything i heard him say seemed very narrow-minded everything he said was you have to do this and you'd better do that and you cannot do that these were emphatic statements and there was not well if you feel like it and you know if you're sincere about taking off this thing or turning that knob i mean when you're dealing with things that can kill you right you can become very emphatic and narrow about the instructions now here's the reality we don't like to think of this as sinful people but sin is going to kill us eternally, right? And because we're sinners, we need a solution for the problem of sin. The answer is very narrow, but there are some very specific instructions as to how to fix this. If there's a fire, there's a very specific way to get out, and it may be down this hallway. It's the only hallway that's not on fire. So here's the way to go. It's the only way. Get out here. God has provided a way out, and here it is. And that's what the Bible is all about. The path of atonement is only through Christ. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one's going to go to the Father except through me. So you can call it narrow all you want, but try to put that kind of mentality into play next time you go scuba diving or skydiving or some instructions about how to save someone with CPR. It doesn't become relativistic at that point where we're dealing with life and death issues. And salvation, religion, if you will, is a life or death issue. What do you think it is that makes people so resistant, I would say, if they call it narrow-minded, to Jesus being the only way in their lives when they're maybe involved in other religions? Is there a will issue going on? Is oh, of course, yeah. And Jesus told the parable and the punchline in the parable about the people that didn't want the person ruling over them was, we don't want this man to rule over us. I mean, that's a 
foundational problem with people that are sinful. We want to be autonomous. We want to do what we think is best. We want to do whatever we decide we want to do. We want to be the captain of our own fate, the master of our own soul. We want these things because we like to keep our options open and do what we choose to do and what we prefer to do. When you become a Christian and we understand there's a problem called sin that is going to eternally damn us and condemn us, then we need to look to the solution, the answer, the Savior, and He's got an answer, and we have to submit to that. And that's hard to do because we want to do our own thing. So yeah, it is a matter of the will. And, and the first three chapters of Romans may help us with this. The reason we don't like God's solution, the righteous and holy solution to our sin is because we're all sinners. And because fallen humanity loves sin, we love darkness rather than light, as Jesus said in John 3, these things are hard for us. It's why it takes the work of God to enliven our hearts and quicken us and make us alive in Christ. And so we throw ourselves in his mercy. We pray for his enlightenment and his change in our hearts and God changes those of us that are saved, and we recognize this very unnatural response as sinners to give up the leadership of our lives, as Luke 14 says, and to follow Christ and to let Him be our Savior and our King, our Lord and our Master. What about those people who are maybe Buddhists or some other religion that are you know, very sincere, very devout, very committed to that particular religion, or even somebody who's never had a chance to hear about Jesus? How do we respond to the person that says, what are you going to do about them? Right. Well, the basic injustice seems to be in people's minds, how can you be held accountable and punished for something you didn't know about? The Buddhists are going to say, well, he was taught Buddhism. You know, the Hindu was taught to be a Hindu. The Muslim was taught to be a Muslim. So that's what they know, and that's what they were taught. So how can they be held responsible for doing things the Christian way and trusting in Jesus and a crucified Christ? Well, you know, I, I understand there is a level of truth and, and, and an aspect of truth to this in that there are many things that God will not punish someone for because they did not know. But to claim, as many do, that everyone in the world, except for those exposed to the teaching of Christ, they're ignorant of the issues that are in play in Christianity, they would be wrong because the Bible makes it very clear. The law of God is written on our hearts. Even in our running from the solution that God has provided in Christ is something the Bible says we'll do by suppressing the truth in our own lives and unrighteousness. In other words, everything in the Bible makes clear we got a sin problem that we cannot solve ourselves. God has to solve it. And all these other religions are trying to solve the problem themselves. And if you were to respond to the light of your own conscience, we would recognize the problem that we have cannot be solved by other religious systems. We need God to solve the problem for us. And we're just filled with a world of people that unfortunately, even those exposed to Christianity, that would rather do it their own way. And the Bible makes clear, even through the conscience of a man and even through the natural order of things, natural theology we might call it, it all these things are screaming to us, that doesn't work. And so we have to continue in those things by suppressing the truth. Now, I understand when someone gets to the judgment day who lived in a place without any exposure to Christianity, there's a lot of things that will not be on the table in terms of punishment because those rules were not out there and they weren't the kinds of things that were ever made manifest in someone's conscience. But when it comes to someone standing before God saying, well, we had no idea you know, what it meant to fall on the mercy of God and to look for our Creator for some kind of grace and to hope that He would provide the solution to our sins. You know, no 
one's going to be able to say that because those are the kinds of things that are even self-evident in someone's own heart. And God provides the answer through the missionary work of the church. This is the whole thing that has fueled Christian missions for 2,000 years, and that is, as Romans 10 says, no one's going to get this clarified in their own thinking to the place of understanding what it means to have Christ as their substitute for sin unless someone comes and preaches to them. So we want to get the word out all over the world. It's the thing that sends us to foreign lands and out of the way places in the jungle where this proverbial man is who doesn't know anything about Christ, and we want to bring the message of Christ. And the amazing thing, again, is that God would save any of us because we all deserve to be punished. And he's sending people around the world through you and I, those that are hearing my voice right now, and your churches. And maybe some of you are out there on the mission field right now going to out-of-the-way places to go and bring the message of the gospel to people all around the globe. And that's been the thing that we were commissioned to do. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to take the message out there. So, you know, I, I understand the, the argument, and I recognize there's a sliver of truth to the fact that there will be certain things that will not be punished because they were not clarified through the teaching of the Christian Bible. I get that. But when it comes to salvation, God is a just God, and no one will ever be punished for something that they didn't understand and know. Because those things are evident, Romans chapter 1 and 2 says, through God writing his law on our hearts and through the things he reveals through nature. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. Let's continue this discussion with a message you've titled, Was Jesus Really More Than Just Another Good Teacher? If uh, someone is uh, convinced that there's a God out there, a supreme being, a creator of the world, and if he's equally convinced that uh, there is a book available to us that reveals him, then it would uh, behoove that person, it would be wise, it would be reasonable for that person to uh, take a careful look at what that book says, to see what that book is all about. If uh, one is to do that, one will quickly discover that the Bible is primarily about a person. A person that has been anticipated in the 39 books of the Old Testament, and a person that is explained and expounded upon in the 27 books of the New Testament. He's also a person that has been grappled with by uh, our world ever since. Now, perhaps we can uh, revisit some of the claims of Christ without our Sunday school glasses on, and we can look at them and just be awed at how remarkable the claims are. So look at one of them with me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, 15 says, You know this God that we know, invisible, dwells in unapproachable light? This God who has great glory that occasionally gives us a little touch of it here in the temple in the Old Testament? Well, this God is seen in Christ. He says, he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is, as chapter 2 of Colossians says, he is the fullness of deity dwelling in a body. He's the firstborn, or prototokos is the Greek word, the prototokos, the one who has the birthright, the firstborn, the one who gets the inheritance, the one who gets to rule the family business and the family estate. He is the firstborn over all creation. This verse 15, prototokos, is not referring to his origin, it's referring to his position. He is eternal. For by him, it says, if you want to prove his godness, all things were created. Really? Now, wait a minute. I've read Genesis 1 a few times, and it looks to me like God created the world. Well, the text here says Christ created all things, things in heaven, earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. That can only be if we're talking about the same person here. All things were created by him. And then the, the real tagger, look at the last three words. And what? For him. He's in charge. Now, all of that's quite academic and quite interesting. And he's really showed some interesting credentials, assuming the text is reliable. But my nagging rational question is, 
Why? You know, why would you come here and live among us? I don't get it. My mind wants to know why God, the God of the universe, would come here and live among us. Wouldn't that be a rational question? Look at Christ's answer, Mark chapter 10. He gives us a clear statement of why. We need to understand why God would become one of us. I mean, that's what we're claiming, that there's a real person with sandals and a beard who wears a robe and a belt who is God in human form. Now, what's the point? Why'd you grow up in the Barstow of Palestine out there in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, walk around and have to, you know, eat the first century food? I've been there. Food's not all that great. Why is it that you subject yourself to all the things that the Bible says you subjected yourself to? Obviously, you're greater than man. Why would you want to come and subject yourself to be a man? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Mark 10, 45, he says, you know what? Even the Son of Man, if you want to talk about serving and humility, he didn't come to be served. And if I'm sitting in the crowd, I'm going to go, no, duh, right? What are you doing here if you've come to be served? Don't the angels do an inadequate job? Isn't it good to be in the presence of, of your Father and this Trinitarian God that is revealed in the Bible? Isn't it best to be in perfect fellowship with a perfect uh, union of persons, this Godhead? Isn't that better? What are you doing here? Of course you didn't come to be served. We're not going to help you much. He says, but I came to serve, and then he defines it. That's all the practicals. Now he's going to give us the theology. I came to give my life, he says, a ransom for many. He came to give my life a ransom for many. Apparently there was something about God becoming a man that was necessitated about a payment that needed to be made, a ransom. A ransom needed to be paid. Now the predicating truth, the foundational truth for that is that there's a payment that we owe, that we've got a problem. Let's assume that you got your car towed. And the friendly tow truck driver shows up in the middle of the night and he takes your car away for whatever reason. You can't pay for your car, or too many parking tickets are parked illegally. But there it is. It's impounded. You can't get it out. And the impound penalty was so severe that the only way you could get it out was to pay the full value of the car. So basically, it's an even swap. You have done so much bad, whether parking tickets, whatever. You've done so much bad that that car is impounded. And the only way to get it out is to exchange it either for the value or for another car. I mean, that would work, wouldn't it? I mean, let's just think that through. I hear that your car is impounded and it needs a ransom. And I say, well, you don't have that kind of money and I don't have that kind of money, but I got a car. And you know what? I love you so much and I'm so fond of you and I just care about you so much. I'm such a wonderful pastor that I'm going to come out and redeem your car. But what I'm going to do, though I don't have the money to ransom your car at its full value, I'm just going to give them my car. And they can impound my car and sell it or auction it or whatever they do. Now, if you drive a Lexus and I drive a Datsun B210, it probably isn't going to work. Are you, are you with me? That ain't going to work. But if I happen to drive a Lexus, which I do not, but let's just assume I did, a pearl white one, V8, there it is. <laughs> and your Lexus happens to be impounded and it's a maroon color. And I come in there and I say, look, take my nice, fine, newly waxed pearl white Lexus and you take my Lexus and impound it, but let my buddy's Lexus go, okay? Just get it out of the impound yard. Now you run into the friendly guy behind the desk, perhaps smoking a cigarette saying, okay. You know, I mean, it might just work my car for your car. But what if I said to that guy, listen, pal, I'm just trying to be such a servant to my friend and I'm giving my life or my car in this case as a ransom for his car. Well, do me a favor. Just let everybody's car go. Just let them all go. Now, what's he going to say? Get out of here. Right? <laughs> Why? Because that didn't make any sense for me to turn in one Lexus and have the entire lot cleared out. But look at our passage again. Jesus said he came to give his life 
as a ransom for how many? More than one. A ransom for many. He was going to exchange his life for a lot of lives. Is that how it works? In the Bible, it says we have a problem called sin. Sin demands God's justice. He's holy. We've missed the mark. His justice demands that he punish us. We are impounded. We have a problem. We are in bondage to the future coming wrath of God. But Jesus came that he could exchange us. Why would God have to embody himself in human form and die on a cross and suffer penalty for me? Why would that ransom have to be paid? Why couldn't some person pay that? Why couldn't it work some other way? Why does he have to be God? The Bible is clear. Turn with me one more passage. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 articulates it for us. There is something about a God sacrifice that is different than a man sacrifice. Oh, he has to be man, Hebrews 2 says, to represent us. We got to have one for one. It's got to be car for car. But there's something about that person being God that makes it acceptable for more than one person. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 9. He says in verse 15, in comparing Christ's death, the ransom of Christ's life, with all the blood spilt in the Old Testament sacrificial system, and he says, while one might you know, placate someone's conscience, Christ's blood, far different, that ransom can, can do a whole much more. He says in verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through, circle this word, the eternal spirit, eternal. There's something man can't do, can't offer a quantitatively eternal sacrifice. But it says, through the eternal spirit offered himself, and here's the qualitative part, circle that one, unblemished to God. The ransom was to be paid to God in his holiness and justice. Christ was the only one, if he's God, who could qualitatively, perfect life, and quantitatively apply to as many people as possible, give enough of himself to apply for the redemption and forgiveness of thousands. And he goes on to say it. Look at verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant of those that are called to receive the eternal inheritance. Now that he died as a ransom, he paid the price to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And the first covenant demands that if you sin, you got to be punished. So Christ died on a cross. Could that be just a prophet? Could that be just a good man? Could that just be a moral teacher? Theologically, it cannot if it's going to work. If I'm going to be forgiven of my sins and embraced by the creator of the universe, if he's going to look past all my deficiencies, we need a sacrifice that is God in human form. Now, the problem is every cult group, every world religion, and everyone else who looks at the Bible and does for the injustice that none of us should do, takes it and changes it, they are people that constantly will go, almost without fail, right for the jugular of our theology, and that is who Jesus Christ is. And they will go and mitigate that, change it, transform it, or reinterpret it. You can't do that and keep our theology intact. Jesus made it abundantly clear with his words, he flashed abundant credentials, and then it makes theological sense. You can't deny it, and yet people try all the time. But that's why Jesus constantly brought people back front and center to the real issue. Do you remember him turning to his disciples and saying, you know what, what do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? Do you remember that? Now, if I'm in the crowd, I'm going to think of a lot of bad things first. Well, they're calling you Beelzebub. They're saying you're possessed by a demon. They think you're crazy. Apostles were a lot more diplomatic than I would have been. And then they start with the positive. Well, some think you're a prophet. Some think you're a reincarnated prophet. Some think you're Elijah. I mean, they got some pretty good views of you. Some think you're crazy. Do you remember what Jesus did in that conversation? He said, hey, who do you say that I am? 
You talk to me about your opinion. The profoundness of that moment when Jesus turned to his disciples and said, hey, you, who do you say that I am? I mean, that's, a, that's the moment of truth. Deceiver, lunatic, or God? So much hinges on that. God, who gives his life a qualitative, quantitative sacrifice for the universe. Who do you say that I am? Have you been asked that question before? Do you, like the world, try to find a neutral place for an answer? Or perhaps, like Peter, you've spoken up in your life and said, no, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Blessed One, the Son of the Most High God. We understand your position. We understand your role. We understand your task. And it is to redeem me from the penalty of my sin. If you've made that decision, my question for you in contemplating the deity and supremacy of Christ is, do you live like that? Are we afraid to stand up for him? By looking in the eyes of our coworkers and our next door neighbors and our family members and saying, I believe Jesus is God and I've given my life to serve him. And if no one's ever confronted you with that question, let me be the agent and avenue through which it's asked you today. Who in the world is Christ to you? Have you made a decision on that one yet? You don't have many options. Aren't his credentials adequate? Do you understand why he came? Let me help you if you're in that camp. Pray with me. God, if there are some here that need to respond to that penetrating question of Christ, who do you say that I am? God, may they pray a prayer that resembles something like this. Christ, I recognize that you are God. Jesus, I, I recognize that you've come to pay a price for my sin. Christ, I acknowledge that if you're God, you deserve my full attention and my full allegiance. And I commit my life, my mind, my heart, my soul, and my strength to the allegiance of Christ. And God, for those of us that have allowed the deity of Christ to become simply a creedal statement, something we affirm in our doctrine, let us recognize that who we're dealing with here, the one who we date our checks by his birth is the creator of the universe. The name that we bear when we call ourselves Christians is an embodiment of deity. And he deserves my unabashed allegiance, my bold and firm commitment in every aspect and area of my life. Drive us there, I pray, as we contemplate the only rational response to Christ's question, who do you say that I am? In Jesus' name, amen. An excerpt from the message titled, Was Jesus Really More Than Just Another Good Teacher? from Pastor Mike Fabares. Find the complete unedited version when you visit focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, why not leave us a note sharing how this program has impacted your faith? We love hearing how God is moving through Focal Point. And I wish we could forward all of these notes to you. But since we can't share them all, I'll read just one brief example. Now, this is a note from a listener named Karen, and she says, Thank you for your ministry. Though I became a follower of Christ when I was a teen, I have never read through the Bible cover to cover. Today, you made me ask myself, why not? Your encouragement to just pick up and read has given me confidence. Isn't that great? 
On behalf of Karen and everyone else who's benefited from this program, thank you for supporting this ministry. And if you've never linked arms with us financially, will you do that right now? Your gift today has doubled the impact. Thanks to a generous donor who is committed to matching each gift this month, dollar for dollar, up to $500,000. But we need you to help us reach that goal so we can reach more people with Mike's bold Bible teaching. Will you get on board with the mission by calling 888-320-5885? When you give, we'll say thanks by sending you a fantastic reference book to enhance your personal Bible study. It's called The Rose Guide to the Gospels. Now, this book will answer nearly any question you have about the first four books of the New Testament and some questions you might not have considered before. Ask for The Rose Guide to the Gospels when you give by calling 888-320-5885 or by going to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again next time when we'll continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.